0: There's just so much more to hear.
1: Download our podcast at dubaii 1038.com. Drive Live Talks Legal.
0: Our guest today is Ludmila Yamalova from Yamalova and pletka Ludmila, great to see you. Good to be here. Okay, we're going to start today a little differently. We have a topic that we want to discuss, but first of all, just want to mention, if you want to get a question to Ludmilla, it gets so busy. We have 45 minutes of her precious and possibly quite expensive time. So if you want to use it, this is your opportunity. You can call us four two three ten ten, or you can text 4001 or via the free messaging app. Now we're going to go straight to a caller. We've got Mezabin on the line and she has a question for Ludmilla. Hello, first of all. Hello. Hi, it's Mezabin. How are you? Good, thank you. What's your legal query for Ludmilla?
2: Yeah, my concern here is that I have paid my rental checks to the landlord in four installment along with the IJARI fee. And the landlord representative, that's real estate company, they have not provided me with the contract yet. And IJARI, they are holding because they are asking for administration fee. I have been a tenant in this building since past five years and there has not been any administration fee. Now they have started this new fee and I have paid all my dues. Uh, but the contract has not been provided only be- because I have not paid this administration
3: fee. So, just for clarification purposes, you said you've been in this property for five years. Who had been managing yes. this property before the current uh, la- representative? Was it a? Diff- it
2: was the current representative.
3: Okay, so they just they were not charging you an admin fee. They
2: were not charging me. In fact, this year, there was a change in the managerial position. There has been a new manager. So he implemented this new fee uh, by giving three months notice. And he declines to give me the contract if I don't
3: pay administration fees. Sure. So contractual, they cannot do that because legally a contract mm-hmm. cannot be amended one sidedly. So in, he cannot just on his own or mm-hmm. amend or include a different term. That's legally. But uh-huh. sounds like in practical terms, you um, you. You've signed. You've if you've paid the checks. Is just you don't have a copy of the contract. And as long as they were managing the process in practical terms, they have control at least of registering your contract. Uh, but in in real terms, it's not really an issue for you because as long as you've paid. And you have mm-hmm. the previous contracts have been registered with the JARI uh, you have a valid contract so the if, if you you could even go to JARI yourself and you can try to register the contract on your own do you at least have a copy a signed copy of uh, mm-hmm. the signed copy of the, of the contract no I
2: don't have the signed copy the original is with him I have signed it I have given it to him he has not signed it and given it to me back
3: okay but the checks have they been cashed
2: uh, the checks have been in cash. They have given me the receipts also. I have the receipt. The check has been in cash. Even Ijari Rera has called him and asked him to give the contract, but he's reluctant to do so. He's adamant.
3: Uh, sure. Well, uh, at some point, it's it, you, uh, you basically don't need to worry anything in, from the, uh, the legal standpoint because you have a mm-hmm. valid contract. You can, you can demonstrate that the contract has also been accepted by virtue of the fact that your checks have been in cashed. Uh and okay. um you know, you really if the contract is not registered with Jari right now unless you need to have an updated Jari certificate you, mm-hmm. you you are in compliance with all the laws. So in practical terms, you should not be affected unless you, for example, want to bring a bring a case to the rent committee. And at that point, you need uh, you perhaps need an a, a, a jury registered contract. But in practical terms and in substantive terms, mm-hmm. just because your contract has not been renewed with a Jari, that is not an impediment, and mm-hmm. it's not a, it does not invalidate your current contract. Um, My recommendation as well is perhaps to get in touch with the landlord directly, not the the landlord representative, but the landlord directly. And obviously, Mm -hmm. since the landlord has cashed the checks, I mean, it's it's not proper for them (laughs) to not give you the contract.
2: Actually, the landlord belongs to the royal family, so it's difficult to get in touch with them. And, um, um, and the real estate company is aware about the consequences. They are aware about the law, but still they, they are troubling the tenant because they feel it, it has come it has become more of an ego issue because uh, since we did not give the administration fee, they hold the contract. They want the administration fee at any cost. It's kind of gone maybe on the
0: business level. Ludmilla, is there a, a possibility that maybe perhaps Mesbin could go to the rental disputes center, to get a copy of the contract with the proof that um, these checks have been paid and just sort of say, look, I've done everything I need to on my part and I hope you're satisfied that I've paid.
3: Sure. Uh, I mean, you could do that, but, but really uh-huh. that's not really the role of the rent committee at this point, because there okay. is not a dispute yet. There has not uh-huh. been a breach of anything. So, uh, generally speaking, you can approach the rent committee before you have a case. For example, if you're trying to, uh, to uh, uh, to give the landlord the checks or the payment for the rent and mm-hmm. the landlord is not available. So you can launch that kind of uh, sort of a, a pre-case uh, matter with mm-hmm. the, uh, RDC and they will hold copies of the checks or the checks themselves and to try to get in touch with the landlord. But in this particular oh, case, good. it hasn't really, you don't really have a dispute yet. There has not, there's not mm-hmm. a mature dispute for you to really apply to RDC. So I'd, I'd say at this point, just enjoy the property. Obviously, the, you know, all the terms have been accepted and then try to work with the JARI to, to see if, um, bring them the copies of the checks, uh, the fact that they have been cast your previous agreements, and see if you can reason yeah. with them and have the contract registered on your own because you too have oh. the right. But, but one, note, one comment, and I guess a lesson to, to derive from this, whenever you sign anything, make sure to get a, a, a scanned copy or at least keep one copy okay. for yourself and a scanned copy of anything that you sign. That should just be a practice yeah. that we all develop as a matter of, of practice.
0: Yeah, that's a good piece of advice. Thank you very much. Mesmin, thanks for calling. Best of luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye.
1: Have a nice day. Drive Live Talks Legal.
0: We are talking legal today. Our guest is Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Plefka. And we've already had a phone call today. We've got lots of your text messages to get through, but we're going to turn our attention for a few minutes to a case. Um, When you see this headline, Ludmilla, fraudsters get 500 years in jail. I mean... Obviously, it draws your attention in because you think, what has someone done to get 500 years in jail? But you start looking at the detail, and there's quite a serious offence here.
3: Uh, Yes and no, because if you actually keep reading through the details, this particular decision was rendered by the misdemeanor court. So it's not a felony. A felony usually is considered to be a serious offence. Misdemeanor is, by by definition, is, is less serious. So in fact, this particular... Uh, exa- this particular case was handled by the misdemeanor case uh, court because it was considered to be a misdemeanor nature. Now the reason we're hearing the 500 is because there were 500 cases plus that were brought against this company, mm. and these are criminal cases. So in fact, there is no, no, there's no provision in the law that allows for a 500 plus year sentence. And, and in none fact, none
0: of us will be alive. To
3: uh, well, yeah, yet, but the, uh, the these are the provision provisions do exist in other jurisdictions uh, where you get double a life sentence, for example, and such. But in the UE, UE there isn't such um, such a penalty. Uh, in this case, what happened is that there were actually, uh, the penalty in each case was one year, but there were 500 plus cases. So cumulative acc- cumulative speaking, uh, you have 500 plus um, years in, in jail. Uh, but it's not because of the gravity of the crime, if you will, but rather because of the, the, the volume um, of the, um, I guess, of the, misdemeanors um, um, or um, wrongful actions Uh, so and so that's that that's one part of this case the other one is that this is and this is important to understand that when you hear a headline like this it sounds very positive and very promising and it's positive and pro- promising from the societal standpoint and that is that the people who have committed um, and have defrauded so many people have been uh, have been uh, punished and um, that the system works um, but in terms of compensation to the people who've suffered uh, that does not this punishment does not equate to compensation and it is because punishment in ter- in particular jail sentence, is administered by the criminal court and any kind of compensation to the victims is only administered by the civil court. So this particular case uh, or this article and and the the number of cases that we're hearing, it's only done through the criminal channels and therefore the victims themselves are not recipients of any any compensation. There could be a penalty in addition to an imprisonment, uh, but the penalty or the fines, they go to the government, not to the victims. So now for the victims to actually be compensated, having a criminal judgment is very helpful because that is something that in a civil court, they can present to the to the judge as confirmation that, the, that a crime has already been committed, so they don't need to prove the crime; they just need to prove the amount of um, the damages that they have suffered. So it is it's a necessary step in a case like this to go first to the criminal channels. But in order to receive any compensation, the next step would be to go to the civil court and actually uh, uh, claim compensation. Now, as uh, as as I say that uh, the a very important uh, Exercise here is to understand, to I guess, to do some due diligence to see if the company actually has any funds, Uh, and so once you do have a civil court judgment, whether you'll be able to enforce um, that judgment against any of the assets of the company, and therefore satisfy the judgment in terms of monetary compensation, because it is it is very likely if if this company and and the individuals involved had transferred the money or bankrupted the company uh, that um, there are not many assets um, that are resident in the UAE. Therefore, even with a civil court judgment, you would not be able to recover anything if the, uh, the coffers are empty.
1: So this was a fraudulent financial scheme. The thing with this, and I suppose the, the positive line from this headline, is that something happened. This affected 500. There were 500 different cases. Here. Hundreds of people uh, had money stolen.
3: Yes, but also if you keep reading through the article, and, and actually this was reported first two, uh, in 2016, and I went back yeah. today and I dug out my uh, my own files, and I remember articles and, and actual clients coming to us back then uh, reporting this this very this very crime. Um, so uh, you know this is this is serious, but I have to. Um, highlight one thing is that as you're reading through the stories, they're very they're heartbreaking uh, but what's even more difficult to, con- to comprehend is that people would go and take loans to invest in these schemes. Um, they pledge their life savings, uh, their children's uh, tuition and such and so I mean and that's that's why the story is, in, in understandably, very heartbreaking. But from from a, a sort of a business management um, uh, standpoint, I guess my advice here is that before you part with any with any money, just make sure that you know you don't invest all of your life savings, especially uh, with with entities that are not properly vetted. And which was the case here, this was not a properly licensed uh, entity, and, and people just um, kind of bought into the the marketing uh, spiel. And mm-hmm. hadn't really done the due diligence uh, to understand whether this is an, an, a real outfit and if the people involved actually knew what they were doing. In the meantime, they were taking on obligations on their own and borrowing money in order to invest. So, and the reason they did that is because the the marketing spiel was very effective. Uh, the yeah. the promised returns were exorbitant. And uh, you know, I've, I've said this before, but my general advice: if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. So, be very cautious when you're being promised. Um, very generous returns in a very short period of time.
1: Well, it was monthly yields of 120% that were being promised in marketing literature. I mean, it Correct. was the exorbitant sums that just are, as you say, too good to be true. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. you can see why that's attractive to us. Well,
3: and this is it. And this is why they were, I guess, the, the, the frosters were so successful because yeah. they, they appealed to all those people who, were, in fact, were most of the people uh, were not very um, the sort of high-paid individuals, but they obviously were attracted to the opportunity of making money, and, and that's why they made these sort of risky commitments of borrowed money to try to maximize their return on investment, and this is, this is just a Ponzi scheme, which we've seen so many of, in, in, on much bigger scales.
0: Okay, we have uh, a text that's come in for you, Lyudmila, no name on this one. It says, can we start a business on the side while working full time? Is it possible? Do I need permission from my employer? It was just a matter of weeks ago, we were discussing this change in the law about taking on other part-time work. Does that extend to businesses if you want to set your own up?
3: Well, you see there are two uh, angles actually to this question and that is one, what's the definition of starting a business? Well, if you are just developing the concept behind your business, Model and you are going to launch it once you have uh, come up with a viable business model. Uh, then that's that's one one scenario. But if you are starting to actually conduct business and and make money, that's something else. So let's say let's let's go through the first scenario. So let's say if if you and me and Natalie want to do our own business and we both work full time, so it's absolutely it's it's absolutely fine for us to discuss ideas about setting up our own business and how we're going to develop it. Uh, but once we start actually generating money there is there are two sides to it one is does that, um, does it present a problem with our current employment? And two, does it present a problem with any of the UAE laws and immigration laws in in particular? And generally speaking, to do, uh, to to conduct any business activities in the UAE, you need to have a proper license. So if you and I are in business right now, and we're starting apart from, we have our own residence visas, we're so-called working legally, or at least staying in the country legally, but we're also conducting business activities for which we do not have a license yet, then that violates... Number of other laws, Um, so apart from getting the Nocs from our current sponsors, um, there is a bigger problem there, and that is that we're we're conducting illegal activities in the UAE because we're doing business without having a proper license.
0: So say, for example, this person hasn't specified what kind of business it is, but say it's um, I don't know. Say you and I wanted to set up a hairdressers, um, and I we were able to get the 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 proper license. I'm not sure what that would involve to be a hairdresser, but if we got this license, would that would that matter, or do you still need well, okay, so
3: and that's the next next element, so we next level. So for us to get the proper license, we obviously need to apply to be shareholders. And if we want to be shareholders, then we need to present to the, the authorities that we are not sponsored by anyone else. And so since you and I have active residence visas in that scenario, then the authorities ask for an NOC from our sponsors in order to allow for us to, for example, be the shareholders or even the manager in that particular company. So you see, that's kind of how it's interlinked. So it's, it's at some point... Uh, we will need to get NOCs from the company if we want to conduct a business legally. Now, obviously, there are other avenues to, and and, and many people do want to try out to run a business before they uh, formalize it to uh, and you know, to, to confirm that it's actually a viable business model. So people actually start doing commercial activities and start conducting business without actually having a license. So the question, your know, listener's question here could be, well, is that sort of legal? Well, in many ways, uh, it's not legal as as far as laws are concerned, but you know, are there any other violations of your current employment? Uh, Obligations and um, and yes again because under the law you're only supposed to be working for the company that sort of sponsors you unless you have other kind of license such as um, the the current part time uh, employment uh, license we've been talking about but in that particular case so even if 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 we're just working on the side we don't really have any confirmation from any other authority that you and I can do this part time so in short it's it's illegal. Um, and on top of that, there could be some, um, and, and actually we have seen this quite quite a bit, uh, there could be specific terms in employment agreements that uh, make it very clear that employees are not allowed to be working for anyone else, so there's even there could be even an expressed breach of an employment provision.
1: Okay. What if you were going to do something that you could do at the weekends? I don't know. NLT's a big fan of cheese, and she makes great cheese and wants to sell her artisan cheese in partnership with you because you are a fan of her cheese and you get together and you form a partnership I and mean, you sell at markets for example at the weekend for want of a better uh uh way of uh, thing that you would sell better products what if you did something like that and you wrote yourself a letter as the owner of a company and said I'm okay with myself doing that and then you got permission from here for example an NOC if you like is that how where does it fall then in that instance
3: well then if we have if we both have respective NOCs from our sponsors then at least that side of it is clear now with regards to the our activity selling at the markets if it's if it's occasional market exhibits that we we do every, sure. let's say, a quarter. Uh, then we still need to get approvals from the the relevant municipality where that particular market is being hosted. Yeah. So let's say it would be Dubai Municipality if it's some sort of a park under the Dubai Municipality jurisdiction. Then for every one of these markets, it's not like we can just pitch a little tent and or, and and start selling our cheese. We need to get approvals from the authorities. And so and so authorities do give these approvals for the occasional uh, markets and right. and um, you know trade fairs. Yeah. But if it's something that we start start doing on a regular basis, that at that point, we are starting to run into the territory where we, need, we may require our own full license, commercial license, to conduct that activity because it's becoming more regular than occasional.
0: Okay. For the record, I think our would be great.
1: I, I, I'm looking that. forward to NLT's Brie Okay. in the not-too-distant future. This is Drive Live. Get in touch with the show.
0: Text us on 4001. It's just gone 10 to 5. We're talking legal on Drive Live. Our guest is Miller Yamalova from Yamalova and Pleška, and she's answering your questions. You can text for the final few minutes 4001 via the free messaging app or you can give us a call as Toray has done. Good evening.
2: Hi, good day. NLT, how are you?
0: I'm great, thank you. What's your question for Miller?
2: Okay, so I have a friend. Um, I believe he used to work here in um, Dubai. It's actually a friend of a friend. And um, so he left the country and he's been wanting to come back to Dubai. And um, the agents that processed his visa told him that, um, you know, the application was declined. So it was actually declined several times. And um, because there was a ban of some sort. So the question was, is there a way that he can find out exactly what the ban is? uh, Why? Because he doesn't even know why, you know, there's a a ban on his uh, profile why he
3: can't come back into the country Yeah, sure. So the, the easiest way to do is for him to grant the power of attorney to someone who is in the country. And to do that, okay. obviously, since he's not in the UAE, he'd have to legally attest it and, and uh, apostille, and that's a fairly expensive ma- process, but, but worthwhile yeah. in this particular case. And so because without it, um, you don't really, no one really has standing to go and inquire with the authorities on his behalf. So number one, you'd oh. have to get a copy of that, or you'd have a power of attorney. And then with that power of attorney, you could go to the immigration authorities, for example, and and find out the reasons for the ban. Um, so that's that's with regards to finding out whether it's possible to find out uh, now There could be two several types of bans. if he used to work in the country It could be and, and this has happened to many people here before let's say if they left the country and uh, the companies would have filed an abscondment uh, against okay. them uh, then uh, Often those kind of abscondments can be lifted by the company and and we've you know, we've we've seen that happen successfully, but that obviously, as you said, the first thing is that you need to find out the reason. And if it's that kind of reason, sometimes you can work with the previous employer and and have that ban lifted. Um, then other times, we've also seen bans sometimes just for immigration purposes. Certain people will not get um, a visa approved, even though they've been to the country many times before. But if you t- if you try again after three or so months, um, we've often we've seen many cases where next time around the, the visa will get approved. Uh, now, okay. if there is a you know if there's a more serious issue for some reason, then then basically, I mean, the authorities may or may not tell you this, and that's something to be aware of. Um, so, if there is some sort of state security reason, you may never know that that's a state security I- reason, and those bans are impossible to lift. Okay,
0: that's fine. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're Thanks, sorry. Um, Ludmilla, we've got a few questions we want to try and get through with you. A couple of quickfire ones. This one. Um, I bought a phone online. It was a European model, but it didn't state it was that online. I only found out when I opened the packaging. The language on the phone wasn't English. It was uh, another country in Europe. Now, I tried to return it to the company and they've said, no, you've opened it, so you can't have a refund. However, this person's saying the language is European. It wasn't as advertised. Who's in the right there? Uh, well,
3: the the consumer, and in this particular case, uh, the company should be more responsible and, and accept the and the refund. And that being said, they may it may be that they have their own refund policies uh, that clearly state that if the package has been opened, then they cannot return it. But it's it's sort of nonsensical if you think about it for consumer goods, because in order for you to test the consumer good, you need to open it. So these kind of terms are not really enforceable if they're nonsensical. But a more a more effective if if um, if you're not successful and reasoning with the company, a more effective avenue is to actually just report the case to the uh, Consumer Protection Department under DED. That department is quite helpful, and they are very responsive. And most of the time when we've seen clients and ourselves actually when we brought up uh, claims with them, um, the matters get resolved very quickly. So mm. that my, that's my advice the so Consumer Protection Department.
0: OK, uh, Yaku's is texting and said, um, can or do companies enforce visa employment bans if you resign before the end of your limited contract? I have a friend that wants to resign from a government company in Dubai and move to Abu Dhabi, but we're worried that they'll place an employment ban on her.
3: Okay, so this is, remember, these these the, uh, the bans that we're talking about here only apply to non-free zone employees, and um, only under the on, uh, only to those employees that are covered by the Ministry of Labor, because also not all the non-free zone employees are, are covered by a Ministry of Labor. There are some specific, for example, government employees that are not covered by the Ministry of Labor, but they're covered by a, se- a separate human resources law. Um, so the ban that um, we can surmise from the listener's um, text um, that, that's uh, in question here is really more for companies that are under Ministry of Labor, so those bans would only apply to um, uh, to the employees that are subject today to the Ministry of Labor and are also moving to another company that is under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Labor. Um, so, and and Ministry of Labor is um, as a federal authority, or and so the database is is common. So, therefore, if you're moving from Dubai to to Abu Dhabi, it's be the sta- the same database. So, if you have a ban in Dubai by the Ministry of Labor and you're wanting to work for a ba- for a company in Abu and the Ministry of Labor, the ban would apply. Now, in which case the ban would apply here is that uh, if you have a if you have an unlimited contract and you have anything above high school degree, then there's no ban. So let's say you have a an unlimited contract and you want eight months into it, you want to resign, then the ban will not apply. If you have a limited contract and then uh, if and and it's in the first part of the term in the first term of the contract, so it has not yet been re- renewed. Let's say. The contract is for two years and you're resigning a year into it then yes there's an automatic six month ban and but that ban only applies again under for companies under the ministry of labor so if you want to work work in the free zone you're free to do so it's not um, it's not applicable in the free zones but otherwise it is if you're resigning um, from a uh from a um, a limited contract and um, and there is no amicable uh ag- you know, agreement between the you and the company then you will be subject to a six month ban. Uh, and um, and if you but it is if you are being terminated, then that ban does not apply. And obviously, it's it's you can always agree with your company, and then they will be able to lift that ban. So there's always an automatic ban as far as Ministry of Labor companies are concerned for limited contracts, but there are ways to lift it under certain circumstances. And usually, it's either amicable settlement or if you're resi- if you, if you resign. Otherwise, six months.
0: Okay. Final question. We're just going to squeeze in really quickly if we can. Um, My employment contract says if I resign within 12 months, I have to repay the visa costs. Is this enforceable? And does one month's notice count towards the year? Uh, Any kind of repayment
3: of visa costs or provisions are not enforceable because under the UAE labor law, companies are responsible to pay for any kind of fees that are required to make an employee um, legal to work in the UAE. So, unenforceable.
0: Excellent and right on time, Ludmilla. Our guest today for Drive Live Talks Legal, Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Pleska. More questions for Ludmilla next week. There's just so much more to hear.
2: Download
3: our podcast at dubai1038.com.